Why renter's insurance? Because pipes. State Farm renter's insurance covers stuff landlords don't, like furniture that gets drenched by a broken pipe. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. Hello everyone, this is Insight. My name is Ali, of course, and here is Charlie. How are you? I'm great. I've got my feet up on a box under my desk to try to keep them from swelling like tree trunks because being pregnant in the middle of summer is amazing. How are you? I'm doing pretty well at the moment, actually, which is a good thing. Now, we have some full-on emotional cases coming up, and when I say full-on, I mean full-on. Everyone buckle in because there are some heartbreaking cases coming up that Charlie can attest to. So in the middle of being emotionally stretched with these other cases, this week we have somewhat of a light two cases to cover, which is a nice break from the murder and mayhem. I mean, yes, people still die in this week's cases, but they are more classic mysteries and it was nice to get lost in a mystery instead of digging through Horrible descriptions of the most disgusting crimes against the vulnerable in society. But before we get to that, Charlie and I and Xander and Paris would like to say a big thank you for your support for Insight Junior. The feedback has been so encouraging and it is appreciated. Charlie and I have a habit of having more ideas than time and we are thankful that not only will we manage to get this idea off the ground, but to have so much positive feedback, it really feels amazing. So thank you. But this week is not a listener suggestion because it seems you all just want us to talk about the emotional and horrific cases. So I picked my own this week. This week we're talking about firstly, what has become known as the lead masks case. And then we have a double header. We're then going to talk about uh, maybe spy or maybe just an eccentric woman who has become known as the Isdar woman. But before we begin, a word from our sponsor this week, Brooklinen. Quick funny story about my Brooklinen sheets. As most of you know, I have a three-year-old and he is obsessed with superheroes. His pillowcases are superheroes, his bed sheets are superheroes, his blankets are superheroes. Since we got Brooklinen, he has cast aside his superhero stuff. He wants a pillow with a Brooklinen pillowcase. He wants to sleep with the big king-size flat sheet instead of a superhero one. Even my three-year-old can appreciate these sheets. And buying great sheets is an easy way to upgrade your life. The right sheets can make or break a good night's sleep, and you're spending a third of your life in those sheets. Brooke Lennon's philosophy is that people deserve simple, beautiful home essentials without the luxury price. This is luxury bedding, underpriced. They have versatile colors and patterns you can mix and match to effortlessly complement any home decor. I love my Brooklinen sheets. Try these sheets and I know you'll love them too. Brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer for our listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code SITE at Brooklinen.com. In fact, Brooklinen is so confident that you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. There's no reason not to give these sheets a try. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code SITE at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code SITE. Brooklinen, these are the best sheets ever. The story starts with two Brazilian electronic technicians. We have 32-year-old 
Manuel Piera del Cruz and 34-year-old Miguel Jose Viana. Both were married with young families and they had a passion about technology and spiritualism. The two men climbed onto a bus from Campos dos Cotoquiasis and they travelled 124 miles, 200 kilometres to the town of Niteroi. They tell their respective families that their need to go on this trip was related to the supply of electronic components that they needed for their job. They were also going to look for a used Volkswagen sedan to buy. The fact they left with about 2.3 million kazirios, which is roughly about $270. But this is somewhat considerable amount of money in Brazil, so the fact they left with this money, it makes this explanation seem plausible. Miguel's uncle actually later reports that he accidentally crossed paths with him at the bus stop. They had a brief conversation while they were waiting for the bus. This is where the story about the car comes from. Miguel's uncle tells him that it'd be cheaper to just buy one from their local area. But Miguel tells him that they're going there anyway for work, so it was just something they were going to do while they were there. Miguel also mentioned something a bit strange in that when they returned, they were expected to return with some kind of spiritual awakening. Between 2 and 2.30 in the afternoon, the two men arrived in Niteroi, and as expected, they were seen at an electronics store. They were regular customers there due to their work, so they were recognized by the people there. But what wasn't expected is that they left without buying anything or even ordering anything. It makes you wonder why they even went there. There is one theory that this was a rendezvous point for them to get instructions as to what would happen next. There isn't anything to back this up. It's just a thought that's out there. Eyewitnesses also reported seeing the men together in a clothing store. This is where they each buy a raincoat. The shop staff reported that the two men after they made their purchase, left pretty much in a hurry. It was raining at the time, so one thing stood out to the shop staff. Neither man put on their raincoat as they left the store in the rain. And then the next sighting was around 4.30 p.m. And I will apologize for my sloppy Portuguese coming up here. Manuel and Miguel were seen at the Bardas Helvis and that was a local bar restaurant, and they bought a bottle of mineral water. So either the barman or the waitress, depending on the account, whoever served them, later reported that Miguel's behavior stood out in particular because he seemed really nervous and agitated, and he kept looking at the time. At this time, bottles weren't disposable plastic like we have now, so you had to pay a deposit, and you would get that deposit back when you return the bottle and they would refill the bottle. But you had to hang on to your receipt to get that money back. And these men asked for and kept that receipt. So that makes me think that at least at this point in time, they intended on returning to the bar to get their deposit back. A local resident named Matos later reports seeing two men matching the description of Mano and Miguel, and they were in a jeep at the foot of the Moro do Vietnam hillside. The driver was a blonde man, and there also may have been one or two other men in the jeep as well. None of these men have ever been identified. And I've also seen that there was only one blonde driver, or there was one other man, or there were two other men. It's all a bit hazy at this point. 
but they park the Jeep and the two men are seen to walk up the hill, which is where they were later found. And this stood out in particular with Matos because it was now getting dark and there was a storm coming. Now this area is apparently a UFO hotspot and there have been numerous sightings over the years. Paranormal investigators have done testing and they've performed secret research and studies. In particular, there is a group of UFO fans, I guess you could call them, and they have frequent meetings in the foothills. But they were all cleared of being there on the day in question. The following morning on August 18th, a local 18-year-old was hunting for sparrows and he saw two bodies in the foothills. He contacted the police. He spoke with an agent, Antonio Gara. And what happened next is a bit strange. Gara doesn't look into the report, doesn't go to see if the kid was telling the truth. He basically doesn't do anything. And this was investigated in its own right later on, but it was found that there was no impairment to the investigation with this delay. There was no evidence that the bodies had been tampered with or robbed or anything during this time, so the agent was cleared. Two days later, on the 20th, another 18-year-old local teenager was in the same area with some friends, and they were flying kites. Jorge lost his kite, and he went to look for it. And as he was looking for it, he started smelling the really strong odor of decomposition. He was curious, and so he followed the scent to see what was causing it. And my guess is he expected to find an animal, or since this was known as a UFO hotspot, maybe he was hoping... He was going to find something extraterrestrial there. But he eventually reached the area where the bodies of Manuel and Miguel were lying side by side. He rushed back to raise the alarm and the police were contacted. The men were partly covered by grass in the brush. They were found dressed in matching formal suits and they had their raincoats on that they bought at the shop on the last day they were seen. The next bit is the strange part, if this isn't all a little strange already. But believe me, it gets stranger. One of the things that makes this case particularly disturbing was that both men were wearing these strange lettered objects shaped like protective masks. And when I say masks, they didn't have arms or a band or anywhere else to secure them to their faces. The masks didn't have any eye holes either. And the materials for making these eye masks, they were later found in the respective homes of the men. They also found a book about spiritualism and science in which intense luminosity, masks and guiding spirits had been highlighted throughout. So take from that what you will. And of course, there was speculation. Apparently the metal that was used for the masks is the same that is used for radiation shielding, which again had people talking about paranormal activity and extraterrestrial entities that are apparently in the area. Some accounts also talk about a packet containing two wet towels also being found close to the bodies. However, I'm not sure of the accuracy of that. Now, the problem being here is that it's been two or three days at this point, and news, it spread fast. Not only were there police officers trying to conduct their investigation, but there were firemen, some journalists, and the typical small crowd of curious bystanders who had heard about the discovery through word of mouth. And because the police had no idea if the crime scene had been compromised, it wasn't the ideal situation. All of this contributed to problems with the autopsy examination as well. 
But also due to the overcrowding and the understaffing of the mortuary chambers in Rio de Janeiro, where the bodies were sent, they weren't refrigerated. So by the time they got to the autopsy, which wasn't right away, there, there was a gap before it happened, both bodies were in advanced stages of decomposition. In any case, the autopsy found no trauma or burns that could have been the cause of death. The tox screen was, again, fairly unreliable due to the decomp. However, what could be tested did not reveal any traces of poisoning. Though we know from previous episodes that tox screens, they can miss things if they're not looking for it. So if something that wasn't in the usual testing panel is what killed them, it wouldn't have shown. The official cause of death for both men was deemed to be cardiac arrest due to unknown causes. This idea that two men had simultaneous heart attacks seems odd. And another autopsy was ordered the following year, and that happened on August 25th, 1967. Nothing else came out of that. The investigation was officially closed in May of 1969 due to lack of evidence that there was any crime. One of the things that was strange and was picked up on both autopsies was that despite being exposed to the elements for three days, they weren't touched by any animals. With the rats and the vultures in the area, animal interference would have been expected and there was none. Now, apart from all of that, this case is made even more creepy and mysterious by the presence of a notebook of one of the men, Miguel. And these writings, although they are perfectly eligible and they're written clearly and orderly, they are written in Portuguese, but they are quite cryptic in what they could mean. The first part contained a list of electronic materials and spare parts like pipes and valves, and there was some other information regarding different work procedures and the like. So that's nothing unusual considering what their jobs were. They were electronic technicians, as I said, and they were away for somewhat of a work trip. The second sheet contained a sequence of codes that looked like a prescription, kind of like what you would see on a medical prescription. It read, Sunday, a tablet after the meal. Monday, a morning fasting tablet. Tuesday, a tablet after the meal. Wednesday, a tablet before going to sleep. And I guess it's important to note that the deaths, they did occur on a Wednesday. So aside from these first two notes, there was one more that gained the most interest, basically because of its increasingly strange contents. And again, this was also written in Miguel's handwriting. It read, At 3.40pm, you should be in the agreed place. At 6.30pm, swallow the capsule after the effect. Protect metals, wait for the mask signal. It's also worth noting that some of the words used, they weren't phrases or words used by either men. This led to speculation that possibly these were instructions that were copied or even more likely dictated to Miguel. Like I said, the investigation eventually ended because there was no evidence that there was any crime. But before that point, at one stage during this investigation, on August 27, 1966, a friend of Miguel and, and Manuel, Elcio Correa Gomez, was arrested with the suspicion of being responsible for the men's deaths. He was a strong influence over the two men, according to one of their wives, and was into the occult to some degree. He also gave contradictory statements over the course of two interrogations. But the fact was he was cleared because he had a rock-solid alibi. At the time of the deaths, he was in Campos, which 
as we said, was about 200 kilometers away. So not somewhere you could just drop by on the way home or during your lunch break. So the case was closed and the deaths were filed as natural causes for both. It then came out in the media that this wasn't the first time something like this happened. It was discovered that in 1962, the body of a radio and television technician named Hermes Luis Feitoso was found. And this was in that same area of Niteroy, but on a different hill. Friends of his reported that he had gone to this particular place with the precise intent to experiment with alleged mental powers. His goal was to receive radio and television signals without the help of electronic means, but with the power of his mind. There was a lead mask similar to the other two at the scene, even though instead of being placed on the body's face, it was found on his side. The circumstance prompted the judiciary to reopen the 1962 file because, I mean, obviously there was a possible relationship between the two cases, but in the end, no connection was found. There wasn't a lot of information available on this. Even the journalist who initially connected the dots between these two instances gave very little information. The impression I got was that they didn't find anything forensic or circumstantial to link the cases or the men to each other. Though I could be filling in some of the blanks here because, like I said, there's not a whole lot of information of why they couldn't link them. And then on March 4, 1966, so we're talking only five months before the two men died, the corpses of two other young men were found on a beach in Rio de Janeiro. Now, while on the surface it does look like these cases could be connected, there are some vast differences. But the two victims here are Alava Mina Barito Fiera Net, and he is a 25-year-old son from a wealthy, prominent family in Brazil, and Wellington Barrios Wanderley, who was his 25-year-old friend. Now, these men were very both into UFOs and they would often attend nighttime gatherings and meetings with other enthusiasts with the intention of spotting UFOs. In this case, at the crime scene, investigators found an empty one-litre bottle of mineral water, two plastic cups, a jar of grana powder that was empty and closed, but it smelt of an ammonia. And because of this ammonia smell, it was suspected that this was a poisoning, possibly a double murder, which is what they were investigating in this case. And in the official tox screen report, there was a presence found of phosphoric pesticide. And although the causes of death were found in this case, no motives were ever found. There is some speculation being mentioned online that due to their passion for UFOs, there is an assumption it had something to do with their desire to contact alien beings, like they were trying to separate the soul from their bodies so they could reach the higher dimensions through drug use. So let's move on to theories. One of the more popular theories is the robbery-murder theory. We know that the men had a decent amount of money for the area and for the mid-60s, it was supposed to be for buying a car, and according to a contemporary news article, their watches were removed from their wrists and put into their pockets. There was also a plastic envelope with 157,000 cruzeros, which I'm probably not saying properly, but it was the currency Brazil used at the time, and in Manuel's pocket was 4,000 cruzeros. So where is the rest of the money? When you add this with the sighting of the two men with the strangers in the jeep at the foot of the hill, were they possibly robbed by those strangers? 
If this was a robbery, you would assume the watches would have been taken and not left with them. But even then, missing valuables wouldn't necessarily mean a robbery gone wrong. The bodies weren't moved or examined for three days. From various reports, it seems that more than one person saw the bodies in this time period. It's possible someone else also saw the bodies and didn't report them, but did help themselves to some of the money. Or the missing money could have been taken to mislead the investigators into thinking it was about the money. Or the other option is that they spent the money, obviously not on a car, but maybe the person who gave them the instructions for what to do on the hill charged for this information. Another theory involves the two men using illicit drugs, in particular LSD, which again could explain where the money went. And these were used to reach that high state of consciousness like we saw with the two men on the beach. And the deaths would be related to an overdose of LSD or whatever drug they had taken. However, I couldn't see anywhere in the autopsy report, even though we know it wasn't the best autopsy report, that there was any drugs found in their systems. The next theory involves aliens, that the men succeeded on their journey and actually had an encounter with aliens. It was reported on the day the men died by a local man and his three children. They were returning from church and all four of them claimed they'd seen an orange oval shape over the hill and this shape stopped at a precise point over it for a few minutes. They also said that the object also appeared to emit light flashes in every direction. Not long after all this happened, there was an interview done with Father Oscar Gonzalez Quevedo, a Spanish-born Jesuit priest. Now talk about rabbit holes. I spent way too much time reading about him and the Spanish Civil War, and that's just another show for another day. As a young priest, he was sent to Brazil due to his interest in parapsychology, and he is a leading scholar in both parapsychology and occultism in Brazil. In this interview, he said it's possible that the victims had died during an experiment with occultism. The men were trying to tap into or stimulate their third eye to see into new worlds. I'm using a rough translation of his interview as a source, so some of it's a little unclear. Either those worlds emitted light or radiation that could damage the third eye, so the masks were worn to protect the third eye, or the lead masks protected them from electrocution, from the dangerous light emissions, or some combination of these things. To get into the right state for this, the men would have taken some type of psychedelic, like mescaline, after having already weakened their physical and mental states through fasting. And that would explain why they just bought a single bottle of water for the two of them and no food for hours. They would have needed the water to take the drugs, but they wouldn't have wanted more than that because they were fasting. Possible the simplest and most logical explanation, and probably what most likely happened in my opinion. Remember what I said that night there was a storm coming? Well, there was. It had started to rain, and then you have these two men who really didn't know the area, and they're both wearing lead masks, which for all purposes are conductors for electricity. And then we have eyewitnesses saying that they saw balls of light in the hill area, presumably around the time the two men died. So when you add all these factors together, it's most likely the balls of light were actually lightning from the storm, which were attracted by the presence of metal in the masks. Now, to me, that seems like a much more rational explanation for their deaths. And the missing money, we know the men were there for days before they were finally recovered. 
We know the hills were a popular UFO hotspot and there were a lot of people around. To me, it's very likely the money was stolen by someone who found the bodies in the days before the police did. I am between the lightning strike and the overdose theory. I think that it's really possible that they took something to alter their state of mind because of their interest in occultism or spiritualism. They thought the lead masks had something to do with it. And what they took was either laced with something or it wasn't pure or somebody mixed it themselves and they died from that. The official ruling of natural causes that they both just had heart attacks at the same time is so ridiculous. But I also don't know that UFOs, even if I was inclined to be one of those people who believe in regular UFO encounters, why would they leave the bodies behind? There's no evidence of murder. There's no evidence of how they died in a murder. There was no trauma to their bodies in that regard. I think the trauma from a lightning strike could have been masked by their decomposition, but something like a gunshot or a stabbing wouldn't have been. So I could go with overdose or lightning strike. And either of those could have caused damage to the heart enough to look like a heart attack, which would explain why that was the final decision. So our next story is quite similar in that it's a suspicious death and no one knows what happened. And that is the case of the Isdal woman. And the Isdal woman, as she's become known because no one knows her true identity, she was found November 29, 1970, near a town called Bergen in Norway. And she was found in the Isdalian Valley, hence her being known as the Isdal woman. So on this day, a man and his two daughters were hiking in the foothills of Mount Yurikin, which is in the Isdale Valley, when they came across the remains of a naked woman. And she was hidden among some rocks. Her body was partially burnt. Near her body were two empty plastic bottles, which smelled of gasoline. They also found a bottle of sleeping pills, a packed lunch, an empty quart bottle of liquor, a silver spoon with a monogram filed off and a partially burnt passport. And I'd assume that the passport was burnt enough to cover the name or her details in her photo. I couldn't find any mention in any article that her clothes were found nearby. That doesn't mean it wasn't, it just hasn't been reported. The police arrived on the scene and this is something the local police had never dealt with before. Now, I know this is something we say quite often, but we have a small town here and this was a strange occurrence. An autopsy was carried out and blood tests showed that the woman had taken likely 50 or more sleeping pills, the same brand that were found near her. Some of the pills were found in her stomach, so they hadn't all been absorbed into her system before she died. There are no autopsy photos that have been made public and this is likely due to the condition of the body. The responding officer said that she was burned on the front, but not on the back. He said it was as though she moved back from the fire, though I imagine if she was lying down when she was lit on fire, the fire could have burned on her front, but burned out before it consumed her body. An open fire like that has to get really, really hot to consume an entire body. Especially considering our bodies are made up majority of water, it's quite hard to burn a body, so I've heard. He also said her face was burned badly enough that he couldn't tell what she had looked like prior to death. 
It's widely reported that her fingerprints had been sanded off, most likely after her death. However, the BBC has published a fingerprint card the Norwegian police made of the Isdal woman and distributed it to Interpol. I looked around for a bit, but I can't find the original source of the story her fingerprints were sanded off. The card does show them a bit smudgy, and not all of them were clear, so maybe that's where it comes from. It's unclear if the smudgy fingerprints, though, were because of decomposition, or her hands were burned, or there was sanding off. But there was enough there that they did find a matching print on an item of hers that was later found, so it's possible this was a bad scan of the card. Like I said, I can't find the original source, just a lot of articles that rely on other articles, so it may have been a myth that made its way into the retellings, and I suspect that with some of the facts in that are repeated in the lead masks case as well, these stories tend to get bigger and more detailed on the retellings, and it's hard to find the source for the information. Now, her dental work should have been a bit more of a clue because she had extensive dental work for someone her age. She had several crowns. She had 14 fillings and various teeth. But the dental work was inconsistent with what was done in Norway or even that entire region at the time. Two regions mentioned most often as places of doing this type of work are Central South America and the Far East. Though I've read it was also consistent with type of work done in Central Europe. But it wasn't consistent with the Scandinavian region. And now there are three things pointing towards cause of death here. First, she had blunt force trauma to her neck. And this could have been from a blow, but it also could have come from hitting a rock as she fell. Second, she had smoke in her lungs. So that shows she was still alive when she was set on fire. And third, the large amount of sleeping pills. So in the end, it was more a combination of these factors that were ultimately ruled the likely cause of death, and suicide was announced as the likely manner of death, though not all investigators agreed with the suicide ruling from the start. Because of the extensive burns to her face, the sketches you see out there are composites of those who claim to have seen her while she was alive. And the first composite was distributed to local and national media, as well as sent across Europe. This sketch didn't lead to an identification, but it did lead to people who saw her. And using this, they were able to track what she did and where she went during her time in the area. Now, because of this sketch, the police discovered that she stayed in multiple hotels. She'd actually visited Bergen several times, and then in between, she had traveled around Europe. They were actually able to put together quite a bit of her itinerary, actually. And another reason they were able to do that, we will get to a bit later. They knew that she was in Oslo, Norway in March of 1970, where she stayed under the name Genevieve Lancia. From there, she travelled to Bergen, where she said her name was Claudia Teft. And then in Bergen, she stays in two different hotels, but under the same name, though. But during her stays in Bergen, it wasn't strange that she would stay in multiple hotels. She would change things up. And then even during her stay in one hotel, she would interchange between rooms. After this, she travels to Germany, where she stays under the name Claudia Nielsen. And this is in October of 1970. Then she travels to Paris and then goes back to Bergen. 
From there, she goes to Oslo again, and this time she uses the name Vera Jarl. And then finally back to where she's eventually found, back in Bergen, where she's again staying at two completely different hotels than she stayed at before. It seems that she never stayed in one hotel more than once. And this time she uses the name Elizabeth Lienhaufer. Now, all of this traveling and name changing, it was done in a short period of time. We're talking about within a seven-month period here. When she checked into each of these hotels, she would generally indicate to the desk clerk that she was a traveling saleswoman and an antiques collector. One waitress at a hotel described her as elegant and self-assured. She was also described as an attractive woman between 30 and 40 years old, about 5 foot 4, 5 foot 5, wide hips, a round face, small brown eyes, and small ears. Those who met her at these hotels said she wasn't really forthcoming with information about herself, which we see why now. She was hiding her identity. She generally kept herself and stayed in her room. Eyewitnesses also claim that she was fluent in different languages. She was known to use English, Dutch, and German. One witness in Norway said that her English was spoken with an accent. On the morning of November 23rd, she signed out of the hotel paying cash, and they ordered her a taxi. She then went to the train station, and this is the last anyone saw her alive. When investigators learned of this, it led them to the train station in Bergen, and in a locker there, they found two suitcases that belonged to the Isdell woman. Going back to the fingerprint issue, the way they confirmed these suitcases were hers was that they matched her fingerprint to a print they found on a pair of glasses in one of the suitcases. There are no confirmed reports of where she was between November 23rd and November 29th when her body was found. In the luggage, the labels from all items of clothing were removed, the police took the clothing around to various shops to see if anyone knew where they could have come from, and all they really found out was that the style pointed towards them being Italian in origin. The Italian connection fits with an alleged sighting. Also in the suitcase was a postcard made from a photograph from an Italian photographer. And even though the postcards were sold in Norway at the time, the police did make contact with him, and he said he actually did meet her. He said that he gave her a ride and had dinner with her in Norway. She told him that she came from a small town in South Africa, outside Johannesburg, and that she was in Norway for six months. As is the norm with this case, there are conflicting reports on what happened next. Either she told him she was in Norway on an extended trip to see the most beautiful sights, or she didn't give him a reason why she was in Norway and he didn't ask. And again, another story is that she spent the night in his hotel room, but there's no confirmation of this, and many places don't mention it at all. Also in the luggage, there was a bottle of lotion with the label peeled off. And when this lotion was tested, it was discovered to be a prescription-only lotion, which I guess explains a missing label. There was also some pieces of broken glass, and this glass had fingerprints on it. Investigators believe that these fingerprints belong to the Isdale woman. However, they have never been able to identify her. In the lining of one of the suitcases, there was money discovered. 500 German marks had been sewn into the lining. I've also read this being described as multiple different currencies. I've seen it being described as loose change. The stories do differ according to the source. 
There was also a diary, and in this diary there were some coded references that Interpol were able to crack. They discovered that this woman had travelled across Norway and most of Europe with eight or nine different identities, and that was based on the names that were written in the diary. According to some reports I read in my research, there was apparently a handful of passports in different names issued in different countries. But that, I'm not sure how accurate that is because it's not mentioned in every source that I read. And if they had passports, they would have had photos and not needed the composite sketch. Now, she not only stayed under multiple names in her travel, but she also wore wigs. The police also found multiple wigs in her luggage, which is what she was known to wear from the eyewitness statements given. According to some sources, non-prescription glasses were also found. But the existence of them, again, varies from source to source. But I can see it being something that would have been there because it fit in with her wanting to vary her appearance. Now, 32 years later, in 2002, a man came forward. He was 26 years old in 1970, and he was hiking with some friends around the same area where the Isdal woman was found. According to him, this day was November 24th, the day after the Isdal woman checked out of the hotel. While hiking, he supposedly saw a woman of foreign appearance whose face was, quote-unquote, distorted by fear. He said she was dressed elegantly and not what you would generally wear to go hiking. She was in a dress and heels. When they walked past each other, it seemed like she was going to say something to him and his friends. She started to move her mouth, but then she changed her mind and just kept going. The hiker said that not far behind her were two black-coated men, who were also dressed inappropriately for hiking, and it seemed that they were following her. And he said they also looked foreign in appearance. So why did it take him 32 years to come forward? Well, according to him, he didn't wait 32 years. Depending on the source, he either contacted a police officer he already knew who told him not to worry about the information because the case just wasn't going to be solved. But other places say he reported it and got a call back telling him to forget about it, like forget what he knew. How true this is, any of it, we don't know. It's possible this is just a guy looking for some attention, being involved in such a mysterious case. None of his friends from that day have come forward and backed up what he said. But if he did make a report and it wasn't followed up on, I mean, that's pretty big, but we'll just never know. You also have to wonder why he would come forward in 2002 of all years. Well, it might have something to do with the coverage of the case in 2002 by a Norwegian television network. This may have triggered him to come forward. And that's not the only thing to come out of the TV investigation. According to them, the special branch, which is essentially the Norwegian version of the Secret Service, had been involved in the Isdal woman investigation, and the Bergen police had found some leads, promising leads even, but that the special branch stepped in, told them to close their investigation. They were told to label it a suicide and move on. The most popular theory is that she was a spy, especially since we're talking about the Cold War time. The fact that she had so many foreign passports also seems to look like she was part of some type of professional organisation, However, I mean, when does that ever happen outside of spy movies? I think it's a bit of a stretch, but it's out there. Another popular theory is that she was some sort of courier, maybe for drugs or other illegal activity. 
which is why she claimed to be a saleswoman and an antiques collector because it would have been the perfect cover. And I think with a lack of border control with customs and the like, it would have been easier just to cross countries with illegal substances hidden in things like antique vases. And the fact that she made mention of it when she checked in, well, no one would question her if she left with an antique she didn't arrive with or vice versa. One of the theories I found is actually coming from a Google translated from Norwegian website. So I apologize if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's a police chief that thinks that the Isdal woman was actually linked to an international check fraud scheme. Because two years after this Dal woman was found dead, two members of the gang were arrested in Bergen. And these fraudsters had operated under a bunch of different names in a number of countries, pretty much like the Isdal woman's pattern. This theory is not proven, of course, it seems very circumstantial, but the idea is that she was in the scheme and either she chose to end her own life or, for whatever reason, the two men following her had murdered her. And then the other one that I saw floated out there was that maybe she was mentally unwell and she was paranoid and she thought she was running from people and that led her to take her own life. Now, there has been a recent breakthrough in the case, and by recent, I mean this year, as in 2017 recent, and that is due to something that Charlie and I are slightly obsessed with, and that's isotope testing. The Isdal woman's jaw had been kept preserved in a forensic archive, and then due to advances with the introduction of isotope testing, it was sent to Australia to the University of Canberra. And based on the chemical trails left on her teeth, they were able to figure out where she came from. Because what we eat and drink, it has an effect on our teeth, bones and our hair. And this is the first time in Norwegian history that isotope testing has been used in a criminal investigation. Now what they discovered with the testing is that she probably grew up in Eastern or Central Europe, then moved west towards France during her adolescence, And this is most likely just before or during World War II. And this is supported by some handwriting analysis that was done in 2016. And that indicated that she may have learnt to write in France or in another French-speaking country. But that's all we really have at this stage. And since we are now at almost 50 years later, it's becoming less and less likely we will ever know who the Isdal woman really is. We have narrowed down the region, which could help someone remember if they knew her, but if she was alive today, she would have been in her 80s, and it's becoming more likely that anyone who did know her, they could have already passed, but I guess it's a start. But I'm not sure why or how the police came to the conclusion it was a suicide, I guess unless they're holding back something from the public. But again, that wouldn't make sense because they are saying it's suicide, which should be, in theory, case closed. But if we're talking about the fingerprints being sanded off, if that's what happened, it doesn't make sense in a suicide scenario. I mean, you could just pour gasoline on your hands and set them on fire. That would get rid of them. It just feels like overkill to hide her identity, It could possibly have been even used as a form of torture, possibly, because there are easier ways to get rid of fingerprints than to sand them off. I don't think she took her own life because this would have been 
possibly the absolute most painful way she could have done that. There are much just taking all of those sleeping pills and washing them down with alcohol would have been enough that she would have lit herself on fire. And we know from the smoke being in her lungs that she was alive when she was lit on fire. I think she was murdered. I think it's possible she was running from someone. It's possible she had a criminal history and this all compounded. But I have a hard time believing that she took her own life in such a a painful way. Okay, so some thank yous. Firstly, to our patrons on Patreon. Thank you to Brittany B, Amy Marie, GR Hannon, and Michael H. And then to our five-star reviews. Thank you so much to Hot Blue Glue, which is a very cool name. I sometimes wish you could ask reviewers the origin behind their name. I think mine is my name with a bunch of numbers behind it. But thank you, Hot Blue Glue, Tammy10271, Ashlane, Froggy Girl, which is another awesome name, and Word Brain 19453606374. We are on Facebook. We have a page where we post all the episodes, as well as our discussion group, which we discuss episodes, documentaries, other podcasts. We recently had a big discussion about books we're reading. It's a private group, but ask to join and we will add you pretty much straight away. We are on Twitter where you can chat to Charlie and that's at InsightfulPod. On Instagram, that's me, that's at InsightPod. And we both respond to the emails, InsightfulPod at gmail.com. We have a PayPal for a one-off donation and a Patreon for an ongoing monthly donation. On Patreon, we have some great rewards for our patrons, like a monthly bonus episode, stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and a thank you card from Charlie. All links are on our website, insightpod.com. You can also listen to our episodes there and read our show notes and access some additional research if you want to read up some more yourself. And finally, it would mean the world to us if you would rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. It gives us a bump up the charts and brings more people to our podcast. So that is all for this week. We'll see you back here next week. Thank you. Thank you.